From March 4th to the 28th in 1998, the 42nd Street Workshop Theater ran Alan Nee's play called The Man Who Was Peter Pan. The dialogue-driven play told the story of the Scottish author James Michael Berry and the character we all know, Peter Pan. After the short run by his play, Alan soon began work on a major motion picture. Filming began in the summer of 2002, just a few years after his play ran. Boasting an all-star cast with Kate Winslet, Julie Christie, and Johnny Depp, Finding Neverland would go on to be nominated for seven Oscars, with one win for Best Achievement in Music Written for Motion Pictures Original Score. Interestingly enough, the movie would go on to inspire a play of its own. Also called Finding Neverland, the musical drew inspiration from Alan's play and wowed audiences when it made its world premiere at the Curve Theater in Leicester in 2012. So, we have a play based on a movie that's based on a play, and somewhere in there is the truth. Let's see what we can do to find it. I'm Dan Lefebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. Before starting our story today, let's set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, which means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, J.M. Barry never had children with his wife, Mary. Number two, J.M. Barry was married to Sylvia Davies. Number three. J.M. Barry was not the biological father of the Davies boys that Peter Pan was based on. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, you'll find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and then by a simple process of elimination, you'll be able to find out which one is the lie. And, of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. Now, with the holidays coming up, if you want to pick up a Based on a True Story t-shirt for someone on your list, or maybe treat yourself to a little something, you can grab those over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash merch. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash merch. All right, and with that, let's settle in for an adventure as we learn about the true story behind the movie Finding Neverland. There's a red curtain on screen. The sounds of an orchestra warming up make a pleasing drone in the background. You listen closely, you can hear someone say, Your five minute call, and places. The camera transports us outside as we see someone riding in a carriage. The credits start to show up on screen. We can hear Dustin Hoffman's character, Charles Froman, welcoming the patrons as they arrive. As the opening sequence continues, we're given more clues to set up our scene. It's a theater. Charles replies to a patron's question, asking if it's one of Mr. Barry's finest, with something to the effect of, that genius Scotsman has done it again, and, oh, how I love opening nights. So, we can gather it must be opening night for a play written by a Scottish playwright named Barry. Then we see Johnny Depp's version of Barry, J.M. Barry to be more specific, or even more specifically, James Michael Barry, 
Now, if you pause the movie at just the right moment, like I did, you can see the sign out front says it's the opening night for a play named Little Mary. Only after this do we get a time and place. It's London in the year 1903. We're also given some text on screen telling us that the movie is based on a play called The Man Who Was Peter Pan by Alan Nee, and that this story is inspired by true events. To wrap up this opening sequence, we see the result of James Barry's new play, and to put it mildly, it's a disaster. After the play, James and his wife, Mary, are greeted by an elderly couple named Mr. and Mrs. Snow. They're friendly enough, but when Mr. Snow asks James what he thought of the play, James simply replies, I think I can do better. Of course, there's quite a bit of creative license there, but that opening night for J.M. Barry's play called Little Mary, an uncomfortable play, that's the title of the play, that actually did happen. The premiere took place on September 24th, 1903 at Wyndham's Theater in London. However, it was not an immediate disaster like the movie makes it seem. According to one reviewer who titled the report, quote, Little Mary produced in London last night a charming trifle, excellently received, end quote. Then they went on to say that, quote, Rare indeed in the theater, says the Times, this is the kind of pleasure one gets from Little Mary, end quote. Another review was titled, quote, Little Mary, big success, end quote and called the play, quote, very brightly written and admirably acted. And then they reported that the producer, Charles Froman, scored an unequivocal success. Or there's this review that's short enough to give us the gist of how really most of the reviews were after opening night. Barry's new comedy, Good. John Hare and Nina Boussicolt, successful in Little Mary, the novelist's latest bit of playbuilding. London, September 25th. J.M. Barry's Little Mary was produced at Wyndham's Theatre tonight. It is a piece of chaff on society, the moral being that society eats too much. The title does not refer to any character in the play, but is explained at the very end with apologies for mentioning the word stomach. The comedy is a great success, especially for Nina Boussicolt and John Hare. So, that's not really the dismal reaction from the crowd that we saw in the movie. Little Mary would go on to run for over 200 more performances, and as a quick little peek into some of the historical accuracy, it also contained some inspiration from the Davies children. It doesn't seem likely that the housekeepers would need to cut out the newspaper reviews like we saw happen in the movie, but that's what we see happen next in the film, as Johnny Depp's version of J.M. Barry looks through a hole cut out in the newspaper while he's sitting in the park. Oh, and as a little side note, for the sake of this episode, I'll call him James, since that's what his friends called him instead of the more formal J.M. Barry. The weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. 
access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. James is reading the newspaper in the park when he hears a voice below him. It's a child lying on his back underneath the bench that James is sitting on. As James talks with the boy, who says his name is Michael, James finds out that Michael is imprisoned under the bench by his brother, King George. It's King George who has issued the decree that simply because Michael is his younger brother, he should be sentenced to time in the dungeon under the bench. King George arrives and verifies the story. James asks him what Michael has done to receive his punishment. George quickly replies, Well, he's my younger brother. (laughs) And then he goes on to introduce the heir to the throne, Jack. No further explanation needed. It's here that we also meet Sylvia Llewellyn Davies, who's played by Kate Winslet. She's the mother of the four boys. One of them, Peter, isn't playing with the rest. Clearly, this is all in the imagination of children at play, but the point here is to set up and introduce James to Sylvia and her children. George, who obviously is not actually a king, that's in their imagination. George, and then there's Jack and Peter and Michael. This is sort of true, but it's a very simplified version of what really happened. Let's dig into this because, as we'll learn, there's quite a few key differences between the movie's depiction of James meeting Sylvia and her children. By that, what I mean is that James met the four boys at the park, sort of like what we saw, but Sylvia wasn't there. For one, the timeline is way off in the movie. Remember in the beginning of the movie when we learn it's 1903? Well, it would seem that Sylvia's children met James on one of his routine strolls around Kensington Gardens in 1897. Kensington was just a short walk from James's home, so he'd often go there with his great big St. Bernard named Porthos to get some fresh air and take the dog for a walk. But there's something else of importance that the movie doesn't mention. James Barry and Mary Ansel were married at a simple ceremony on July 9th, 1894. Porthos was James's present to Mary. Even though we don't see their marriage in the movie, we get the sense throughout that James and Mary don't have a happy marriage. And that's true. Some historians have suggested perhaps it was never consummated. Of course, that's hard to prove or disprove either way. What we do know, though, is that James and Mary never had any children. Not for lack of wanting them, though. Mary really wanted kids. James wanted them, too. But there was this unhappy and perhaps loveless marriage. Mary resorted to treating their puppy, Porthos, as their child, James, on the other hand, enjoyed taking Porthos to Kensington and delighting children in the park there. As a side note, I know how creepy this may sound, and to be honest, I did find some people who have brought this up and suggested that perhaps James was some sort of a pedophile. This is something that we've never been able to prove, though. 
the children themselves have said that there was never anything that would be considered inappropriate. Many years later, the youngest of the Davies children, Nico, was quoted as saying, quote, I don't believe that Uncle Jim ever experienced what one might call a stirring in the undergrowth for anyone, man, woman, or child. He wasn't innocent, which is why he could write Peter Pan, end quote. But you see, James loved children. Perhaps it was as innocent as Nico believed, and because he shared their imagination. So when James saw two children playing happily in Kensington Garden in 1897, day after day, he started to take notice. This was George and Jack. Jack's real name was John, and sometimes they were joined by Peter. Michael wasn't there because he wasn't born until 1900, and their mother Sylvia usually wasn't there either. The boys came to the park with their nurse. Now, it didn't take long for James to become fast friends with the children, in particular the oldest, George. And it wasn't until December 31st of 1897 that Sylvia met James. That happened at a dinner party hosted by their mutual friend, Sir George Lewis. The interesting part about this is that Sylvia was married at the time. She was not a widow at the time of meeting James, like we saw in the movie. Although it is true that Sylvia would become a widow soon after their meeting, her husband Arthur would eventually become the inspiration for Mr. Darling in the stories of Peter Pan. The movie has Sylvia being a widow when she meets James in 1903, but the truth is that Arthur died on April 19, 1907. That's quite a difference from what the movie shows because it means that Arthur was alive for most of the events that we see in the movie. We see what happens between James and Mary when James spends so much time with Sylvia and her boys, but we never see, in the movie that is, we never see what happens on Sylvia's side because the movie makes it seem like Arthur was already gone. But he was right there. Back in the movie, after the failure of James's play, Little Mary, we see Dustin Hoffman's version of Charles Froman talking to James. And then we start seeing, kind of in the background, you see people carrying things away. Charles says he took an extended lease on the theater, and with the failure of the last play, there's some pressure on James to create a hit. Well, we already learned that Little Mary wasn't quite the failure that the movie makes it seem, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't pressure on James to create a new hit play. After all, that's sort of life when you're a writer. You finish one story and then it's on to the next. That pressure was just played up a bit for the film. Now, the next major plot point in the movie happens when we see James come up with the idea for Peter Pan. It happens across multiple scenes as we see James playing with George Jack, Peter, and Michael. They pretend to be lost boys, Indians, and we see James imagine Sylvia's mother, Emma de Maurier, as if she's Captain Hook, as she talks about how she'll lock up the boys to do chores and they'll not be let out. At one point, James imagined the boys flying out of the window as they're bouncing on their beds. These are all the types of scenes that get fictionalized in a movie because what really happened would have probably taken too much time, but even though those specific scenes may not have been how they happened, it is true that the adventurous exploits of James and the Davies children were inspiration for many of the things that we're familiar with in the Peter Pan stories. 
Probably the biggest inaccurate thing in the movie here is something that we've already talked about a bit, the timeline. The movie implies this all happens after 1903, but as we learned, they actually met in 1897. Now, the character of Peter Pan made his very first appearance in a chapter called Peter Pan in Kensington Garden in J.M. Barrie's book called The Little White Bird. That was published in November of 1902. That means Peter Pan was already a character that James had written about before the timeline of the movie even took place. Although, to be fair, it's not like Peter Pan became much of a hit thanks to his brief appearance in The Little White Bird. That didn't come until a little bit later. And we learn about that in the movie when we see Johnny Depp's version of James talking to Dustin Hoffman's character, Charles, about the idea for his next play. He describes Tinkerbell, the fairy who is portrayed by just a floating light around the stage, and tells Charles the story of the clock inside the crocodile. According to the movie, Charles is hesitant about James' new idea. And there is some truth to that. As we touched on a bit earlier, James' last play, Little Mary, drew some inspiration from the Davies boys, mostly in the form of lines he'd heard the children say. This time, James drew even more inspiration from the children. He started writing his new play on November 23, 1903. The very next day, something happened that was yet another difference between what we see in the movie and what happened in history. In the movie, we see four Davies boys. But Arthur and Sylvia Davies had another baby boy. We've already heard his name. It's Nicholas, or Nico as he was called, and he was born on November 24th. Immediately, James drew inspiration from the Davies family for his brand new play. In fact, that opening scene with Wendy in her bedroom in the first version of the play was inspired by the doctors waiting to help deliver Nico while in Sylvia's room. The Davies family was growing, and their home was starting to feel a little small, at least for Arthur Davies. Now, somewhere around here, he started considering moving his family away from the Kensington Garden area. We don't see any of this in the movie, of course, because the movie suggests that Arthur was already out of the picture in 1904. But another factor that could have been going into Arthur wanting to move his family very well could have been James. It's hard to prove Arthur's motivations, but it would make sense for a father to be wary of another man hovering around his wife and children. The house Arthur had picked out for his family was a bit outside of London city limits, about 25 miles or 40 kilometers away from their home near Kensington. Back in the movie, there's a scene where we see Ian Hart's character, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, sitting together with James at a cricket match. Arthur tells James that people are watching. His relationship, or whatever it is, with Sylvia is catching people's eyes. It seems improper for a married man to hang around with a widow so much. That's made up. At least that particular conversation was. As we already learned, Sylvia wasn't a widower in 1903 when James began to work on his new play. But it is true that James Barry was friends with the author of the Sherlock's Holmes stories, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. In fact, in the 1890s, James himself wrote three of his own stories starring the genius detective created by his friend Arthur. James wasn't the only one who wrote them about Sherlock, but they're the ones that are relevant to our story today. Now, it was in early 1904, on March 1st, actually, when James finished the first draft of his new play, tentatively titled Peter and Wendy. 
As a little side note, a lot of people think that J.M. Barry was responsible for creating the name Wendy and that it never really appeared before the introduction of Peter Pan. But that's not true. The etymology of the name Wendy dates back to names like Guinevere or Gwendolyn. But there's also documentation of people, often boys, named Wendy in the 1700s. So even though James didn't invent the name, the popularity of his play certainly did make the name more popular than it had been before, perhaps than it ever had been before. So in a way, that's some you could say that he made it popular, even if he didn't invent it. Now, as for how he came up with the name, James got that name from another child not in the Davies household. That was a little girl named Margaret Henley. But she befriended James and... Like sometimes happens, the young Margaret had a hard time pronouncing some letters. In particular, R's gave her a hard time. So when she called James her friendy, she couldn't pronounce the R, so it would come out as my Fwendy. Sometimes she'd call James Fwendy Wendy. And that's how James came up with the name Wendy. It was, as most of the play was, yet another bit of inspiration from one of his friends who happened to be children. Unfortunately, in this case, his late friend. Sadly, Margaret died in 1895, many years before James even started on his Peter Pan play. She was only six years old when she passed. Oh, and little Margaret loved her cloak. It was another inspiration for Wendy's cloak in the play. We don't really know how much James told Charles Froman about his new play as he was writing it. We also don't really know exactly how those discussions might have went. Now, the movie seems to suggest that Charles was very hesitant about the storyline, as we touched on earlier. And if we put ourselves in the shoes of a theater producer, it would make sense. After all, James' new play was calling for over 50 actors to portray all sorts of animals and wildlife. There were a number of flying tricks that involved some complex stage work, not to mention some very lavish sets that would have cost a pretty penny. Meanwhile, the storyline of the play was something that those who heard it were afraid might be something only James and perhaps the Davies family would get. The movie doesn't mention this at all, but James was so unsure about how his play would be received by Charles Froman that he actually wrote a second play. In April of 1904, he pitched both plays to Charles by saying that Peter and Wendy was his passion. The name Peter and Wendy of his play was his passion. He doubted that it would be commercially successful, but he loved the play so much that if Charles agreed to put it on stage, James would give him the second play called Alice Sit by the Fire. Well, I think you know which of those two plays became a commercial success. Hopping back into the movie's timeline, there's a moment where we see James visiting the Davies family at their country cottage. Peter and his brothers put on a play when Kate Winslet's version of Sylvia starts coughing. The play continues, but Sylvia's coughing grows. She can't stop. Rushing her inside, a doctor is called. Peter is upset. He doesn't want to play make-believe when he knows there's something seriously wrong with his mother. And this is something that we've seen kind of since the onset of the movie. Remember, there's an earlier scene where we see Peter in the park with James, but Sylvia isn't there because of what Peter calls a chest cold. But Peter knows this isn't a chest cold. It's something worse. 
While it is true that Sylvia ended up getting cancer, the movie seems to speed this up a bit because as far as my research indicates, there's nothing to suggest Sylvia knew anything about any serious illness as early as 1903 or 1904 like the movie makes it seem. However, it's worth pointing out that James did have a horrible cough himself. The movie never shows this, probably because it would get a little confusing with the plot line of Sylvia's cough and illness, but James contracted pneumonia and pleurisy on a trip to tell his mother the good news about his engagement to Mary way back in 1894. From that moment on, James would have a bad cough for the rest of his life, something that often made the public wonder about his health. Speaking of James and Mary, if we head back into the movie, after Sylvia is looked after by doctors, James returns home to find Mary with another man. It's someone named Gilbert Canaan, and he's played by Oliver Fox in the movie. Gilbert says something about him being there to talk to James. He, being Gilbert, is on a committee to fight government censorship, and he wanted to talk to James about it. This is nothing more than an awkward encounter, and Gilbert, realizing this, leaves. Afterward, James gets into a bit of a tiff with Mary. What was she doing so late with Gilbert? But as James points out, Mary could ask the same thing since he was just to see Sylvia. Johnny Depp's version of James says he doesn't want to have the conversation, and then he heads off to bed. At this point in the movie, we're left wondering, we as viewers are left wondering, Are Gilbert and Mary having an affair? Not to get too far ahead of our story, but we see a bit of this plot unfurl later when we find out that, yes, they were having an affair. And that's something that, well, this scene where we see James walk off without having the conversation is quite an apt description of it all. In truth, everyone knew that Mary and Gilbert were friends, good friends. Some might have even believed too good of friends. But for his part, James never seemed to address the situation. Not for the lack of being asked. As the Davies children grew older, at one point a 13-year-old Jack asked James why Mr. Canaan was always hanging around with Mrs. Berry. We don't have any documented proof of how James answered that question. Some historians have suggested that James simply didn't want to see what was right in front of his face. Surely he had to have known that there was something going on. In the great biography by Andrew Birkin called J.M. Barry and the Lost Boys, there's a photograph of George riding on a toboggan with Gilbert. But, at some point, James painted over Gilbert's face on the negative, leaving a faceless person on the final image. Kind of gives you an idea of what he felt about Gilbert. Back in the movie, it's time for opening night on the new play. This time, if you pause the movie, you can read the sign out front that says, quote, Duke of York's Theatre, Charles Froman presents Peter Pan, opening night, end quote. There's no indication of the date that this happened in the movie, but we know from history that this took place on Tuesday, December 27, 1904, at 8.30 p.m. local time, to be more specific. Now, it was supposed to be the 21st, before Christmas, but one of the lifts on the set collapsed, forcing the play to be postponed until after the holiday. That had to have had added plenty of stress to an already stressful situation. Since the first draft, Charles Froman had invested a ton of money and time into seeing the play become a reality. In that time, he'd become really somewhat passionate for the play itself as well. There were plans in place to take the play to America if the opening night in London went well. In the movie, we see a bit of last-minute inspiration to try to get the crowd to enjoy the play. 
This comes in the form of 25 children from a nearby orphanage that James gives seats to scattered throughout the theater. As they laugh and enjoy the play, the laughter is contagious, and before long, everyone is loving the play. Now, I couldn't find anything to show that this happened, but that doesn't mean there weren't any changes at the last moment. We already learned about where Wendy Darling got her name, and John Darling was named after John Davies. But in the final month leading up to opening night, the youngest Darling had his name change in the script from Alexander to Michael, named after Michael Davies, of course. Another change was something James did to help ensure the final line of the play didn't end with absolute silence. I'm referring, of course, to the line where Peter Pan looks at the crowd and tells them that if you believe in fairies, clap your hands. How horrible it would be if the crowd was utterly silent. So James decided to tell the orchestra that if the crowd didn't start clapping, that they should start clapping, as if it had been the intention all along. But they didn't have to. The crowd erupted into applause. Oh, and someone else the movie incorrectly shows as being in the theater at the time was Dustin Hoffman's character, Charles Froman. He was actually at home in White Plains, New York, when the play in London opened. So he waited nervously for news from across the pond. He even passed the time with his children by acting out the play at home. News didn't travel quite as fast back then. The play opened at about 8.30 p.m. in London, and that would make it about 3.30 p.m. in New York. Charles's phone didn't ring until midnight. They'd received a cable from London, and the voice on the other end relayed what it said. Quote, Peter Pan, all right, looks like a big success, end quote. That sounds a little bit contradictory. The latter was actually more true than the former. The play known as Peter Pan, or The Boy Who Wouldn't Grow Up, was a huge hit. It continued to play every afternoon at 2.30 p.m. and every evening at 8.30 p.m. and the audiences loved it. Oh, and if you've ever wondered why the lead character of Peter Pan is usually played by a woman, that boils down to a decision by Charles Froman. You see, he'd work with an actress named Maude Adams that he was convinced should play the lead role in the play in America. So, for consistency's sake, that meant a girl would play Peter Pan in the London version as well. That's why Nina Boussicolt was cast as the very first Peter Pan when the play opened in London. Back in the movie, things come to a very sad but somehow happy ending when we see Sylvia's illness start to get the better of her. She's sick, so she can't see Peter Pan's successful opening. Instead, she sends Peter and tells him to report back on the play. And if you're like me, for a moment there, I thought Sylvia was going to pass away before Peter could get back and tell her about the play. But she doesn't. There's no indication of timing, but we see James decide to bring the play to her. A week, Sylvia gets help walking downstairs where we see the costumed dog, Nana, walk into their parlor. And the play begins. We see Kelly McDonald's portrayal of Peter Pan saying that last line, Do you believe in fairies? If you believe, clap your hands. Sylvia's mother, Emma, is the first to start clapping. She's changed her opinion of James, obviously. Then everyone else claps. All of a sudden, 
The wall is lifted, and behind it is a world of imagination. Actors dressed as fairies are playing what looks like the Davies backyard, but then we see Kelly McDonald's version of Peter Pan fly into the backyard. So is this supposed to be real or imagination? Or is the movie trying to blur the lines between those two? Tears are in everyone's eyes, including yours and mine as moviegoers, as James whispers into Sylvia's ear, That is Neverland. Then, Sylvia walks down to Neverland, alone, and the lights fade around her. The next scene that we see is the boys, Emma and James, along with some other background characters. They're surrounding a freshly dug grave, and the message is clear. Sylvia is in Neverland forever now. As great of an ending to the film as this may be, That's not really what happened. We already learned that Sylvia was married throughout the events in the movie, and that continues to be true through the opening day for Peter Pan. If you recall, that opening day was December 27th, 1904. Well, as we touched on before, Arthur was planning on moving his family out of London. He did that the same year, 1904, moving them to a mansion called Egerton House in Hertfordshire that was built during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. Remember that part in the movie where we hear Peter tell James about when his father passed away? According to the movie, they were supposed to go fishing in a week, but they didn't because his dad died the next morning. I don't know if Arthur actually promised his son a fishing trip before he passed, but if he did, it certainly wasn't the surprise passing that the movie makes it seem like. In 1906, two years after moving out of London, Arthur discovered a growth on his cheek that turned out to be cancerous. He had multiple operations to have much of his jaw and cheekbone and and palate removed. Because of the operations, he couldn't talk anymore. He was in an incredible amount of pain, and to make matters worse, it didn't remove all the cancer. Despite what many historians have considered to have been some animosity between Arthur and James, still others suggest perhaps there wasn't any animosity at all. We don't really know for sure, but what we do know is that James, now extremely wealthy off the success of Peter Pan, paid for all of Arthur's medical bills. On April 19th, 1907, Arthur Davies passed away. He was only 44 years old. As for James and Mary, the way the movie ends things with them is on opening night for the play. We see James arrive at the theater and confront Mary about her affair with Gilbert. She doesn't deny it, and as moviegoers, we're left to assume what happens when Mary kisses James on the cheek with a soft goodbye. Well, as you can probably guess, none of that happened at opening night for Peter Pan. In fact, most historians believe the affair didn't really start until 1908, four years after Peter Pan's opening night. But it is true that James confronted Mary about her affair. That happened in July of 1909, and James told Mary to stop seeing Gilbert. She refused. He didn't want to divorce her, mostly because it would be a scandal for a celebrity with his status, so he suggested a legal separation. Practically, they'd be divorced, but technically they'd still be married, so James still insisted that Mary would stop seeing Gilbert. Again, she refused. So in October of 1909, James and Mary were divorced. Mary went on to marry Gilbert, and despite no apparent legal requirement to do so, James continued to give Mary financial support through a set amount given once a year when the two enjoyed a private dinner together on their wedding anniversary. 
James never remarried, but he did stay close to the now-widowed Sylvia and her boys. In fact, James claimed to have been engaged to Sylvia, but the boys didn't really believe him. We'll never know for sure, but even had he been engaged to her, perhaps one of the reasons why James never remarried was because of what happened just less than a year after James and Mary were divorced. That would be the death of Sylvia, who, like the movie shows, did contract cancer in her chest. She passed on August 27, 1910, at only 43 years old. Even though the movie changed the timeline for some things, it is correct in showing that James became legal guardians of the children after Sylvia's passing. Although she didn't name only her mother, Emma, and James as the two guardians like the movie shows, in truth, Sylvia named Emma, James, her brother Guy, and Arthur's brother Crompton as the guardians for the boys. Sadly, this wouldn't be an end to the tragedy for James and the Davies family. Just five years after Sylvia's death, the first of the five boys died. It was George, the oldest, who was serving in World War I as a second lieutenant in the King's Royal Rifle Corps. He died at only 21 years of age from a gunshot wound he received while in the trenches at Flanders. Then, just six years later, Michael was the second of the Davies family to die way too young. He was swimming with a friend when he drowned on May 19, 1921, just one month before his 21st birthday. There's been some speculation about the cause of his death because Michael was bathing in the pool with a friend who many thought was his lover, Rupert Buxton. Some think perhaps it was a pact the two had made thanks to a couple of witnesses who saw the two swimming without making much of a struggle. Their bodies were recovered, clasped around each other, the official explanation was that Michael was drowning and Rupert drowned while trying to save Michael. It's worth pointing out that Michael was terrified of water, but he still tried to swim. Rupert, on the other hand, was a very good swimmer, so the official explanation is possible. Regardless of why it happened, it was a complete shock to anyone who knew him. When he heard the news, James didn't sleep from the time he heard the news until Michael was buried two days later. Those around James noted how much of an impact Michael's death had on him, saying it cast a dark shadow over him for the rest of his life. We get a peek at how much it weighed on his mind when the following year, on May 3, 1922, James addressed the students at St. Andrews University. Although James never used Michael's name, it isn't too hard to know who he's talking about when we hear a portion of that speech. As I see him, life is so beautiful to him that its proportions are monstrous. Perhaps his childhood may have been overfull of gladness. They don't like that. If the seekers were kind, he is the one for whom the flags of his college would fly one day. But the seeker I am thinking of is unfriendly. And so our student is the lad that will never be old. He often gaily forgets and thinks he has slain his foe by daring him, like him who, dreading water, was always the first to leap into it.
This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. There's so much more to the story that we could never hope to cover in a single podcast episode, but if you want to learn more about J.M. Barry and the Davies family, I would highly recommend Andrew Birkin's fantastic book called J.M. Barry and the Lost Boys. I'll make sure to include a link to that and plenty more resources to start learning over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, J.M. Barry never had any children with his wife, Mary. Number two, J.M. Barry was married to Sylvia Davies. Number three, J.M. Barry was not the biological father of the Davies boys that Peter Pan was based on. Did you find out which one is a lie? Lie is number two. Even though James claimed to have been engaged to Sylvia after divorcing his wife Mary, as we learned, there was some skepticism about that claim. And even if he was engaged, sadly, Sylvia passed away less than a year after James and Mary's divorce. So the two were never married. And that brings us to an end of our story today. But there's always more history to learn. If you've already listened to the hundred or so of the past episodes of Based on a True Story and are looking for something new to listen to, check out some of the minisodes by becoming a producer for Based on a True Story. Supporting the show costs as much or as little as you want. There's no tiers or anything. It's just a pay-what-you-want model. And by signing up, you'll get exclusive access to bonus episodes looking at how history is portrayed in fictional movies like Back to the Future and Jurassic Park. And if you're listening to this around the time it's released... Then you'll have some fun Christmas-themed movies to look forward to, starting with next week's mini-sode, covering one of my favorite comedies of the season, Christmas Vacation. To grab that as soon as it's available, sign up to become a producer over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon. <laughs>